is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're getting more details about the pathology of the Zika virus, which is still fraught with many unknowns. Global health officials are still trying to connect the dots between women being infected during pregnancy and the likely result of birth defects in their offspring, and whether there may be other causal factors at play. Well, Mark, at this phase where there are still so many unknowns but a lot of fear, experts are emphatically warning women of childbearing age and certainly women who are pregnant already to simply avoid the hardest hit areas, South and Central America, as well as the Caribbean for now. Now there's an added threat. Health officials have recently determined that the virus can be sexually transmitted based on a recent case they examined in Texas. Well, another pathway to transmission now to be very concerned about, Mark. And as we've seen with other epidemiologic studies, the recent Ebola outbreak is a great example. We've just got to get far more data on the pathology of the virus, all transmission routes, potential risk assessments, and, of course, prevention. All around, just another new major Mm -hmm. global worry. You're absolutely right. And as health providers, it's uh, important that we all know the facts. And members of Congress are also concerned about getting the facts. HHS Secretary Sylvia Matthews Burwell updated members of Congress on the latest details about the virus and what federal and state precautions are being put in place. Meanwhile, epidemiologists are converging on ground zero, the region in Brazil with the highest number of cases, as well as babies born with the signature birth defects, in order to get to work on a vaccine. Officials caution it could take years to produce a viable one, but to protect population health, that's the goal at the moment. Uh, Another threat to population health, Margaret, is the obesity epidemic. The USDA just released new federal nutritional guidelines to help educate the public about ways to achieve optimal health and weight. Something our guest today is a renowned expert on. Dr. Dean Ornish is the founder of the Preventive Medicine Research Institute, which has been dedicated for decades to producing sound, empirical evidence on the link between good nutrition and good health. And he's going to bring some unique insights into solutions to the obesity epidemic, which also underlies so much of the chronic disease burden in our country. We'll also hear from Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, but No matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Dean Ornish in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. President Obama's final budget proposal includes requests for a number of health issues that have taken center stage in his last year in office. The president's budget proposal includes more than $700 million for cancer research to support his Moonshot for Cancer initiative being led by Vice President Joe Biden. The president has also asked for $1.1 billion to help combat the opioid addiction problem in this country. Roughly 30,000 overdose deaths occurred on opioids in 2014, both with prescription opioids as well as heroin. Half the money will go towards creating treatment facilities to meet the rising tide of addicts in need of treatment. The other half of the money will go to programs intended to prevent prescription drug overdoses, crack down on illegal sales and improve access to naloxone, a drug that can rescue those who have overdosed. U.S. experts will travel to Brazil next week to start work on the development of a vaccine against the mosquito-borne Zika virus. 
Ministers from across South America met to discuss the public health emergency and how the region can coordinate its fight against the virus. Zika has been linked to a birth defect known as microcephaly, in which babies are born with abnormally small heads and underdeveloped brains, and is also spreading rapidly through the Americas. The World Health Organization has declared an emergency. Meanwhile, the recent revelation the Zika virus can be sexually transmitted between partners adds a new level of concern and warning to those planning to travel to the region. Region, and certainly those of childbearing years living in South and Central America, as well as the Caribbean. Amid growing concerns of burnout among medical residents, a recent study shows calling on young medical trainees to work longer hours may be exhausting for the residents, but the study shows no real harm done to patients. The New England Journal of Medicine study looked at a recent effort to cap the number of hours medical residents were expected to work to protect not only their health, but the health of their patients. The study conducted a direct experiment tracking patients patient outcomes after loosening rules for doctors in 58 surgical residency programs. Found their patients did not die or suffer complications any more than at 59 residency programs that didn't waver from the current rules. I'm Ariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Dean Ornish, founder and president of the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute and a clinical professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. Dr. Ornish has served both the Obama and Clinton administrations, advising on nutritional guidelines for optimal health. A prolific writer and author, Dr. Ornish serves as the medical editor of the Huffington Post and has written several New York Times bestsellers, including Dr. Dean Ornish's program for reversing heart disease, Eat More, Way Less, and the most recent, The Spectrum. Dr. Ornish has earned numerous awards for his work, including the National Public Hero Award from UC Berkeley. He earned his medical degree from Baylor University School of Medicine and was a clinical fellow at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Ornish, welcome to Conversations in Healthcare. Thank you. Glad yeah, to be here. Yeah, and uh, you've been out on the leading edge for a long time now, conducting longitudinal studies on the science and nutrition and its impact on health and wellness. And uh, your studies point to the potential of proper nutrition in not only preventing illness, but reversing illness as well. And I'm wondering if you uh, could describe for our listeners the relationship between nutrition, health, and wellness, and how your work has evolved over the past few decades. Well, you know, we tend to think of advances in medicine as being a new drug, a new laser, something really high-tech and expensive. And what we've done for the last almost 40 years now is to use the latest technology that's high-tech, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful uh, and how dynamic these underlying lifestyle changes can be. And everything we've done was thought impossible at the time. We were able to show for the first time that even severe heart disease can often be reversed by making lifestyle changes, that type 2 diabetes can be reversed, that early-stage prostate cancer may be slowed, stopped, or even reversed, that when you change your lifestyle in these ways, it changes your genes, turning on the good genes that protect us and turning off the genes that cause oxidative stress and inflammation, which, as you know, are often at the root of so many chronic diseases, as well as down-regulating or turning off what are called oncogenes that promote prostate, breast, and colon cancer. Uh, over 500 genes in just three months. Um, and we found in our, in our latest work that these same lifestyle changes can actually begin to reverse aging at a cellular level by lengthening telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes, that actually control how long we live. It's really the only controlled study showing that any intervention, including drugs, hmm. can actually lengthen telomeres. 
And so the more we study, the more mechanisms we find to explain why these simple changes in diet and lifestyle are so powerful and how dynamic they are, how quickly you can feel better. And so that in turn reframes the reason for making these changes from, from fear or for preventing something bad from happening to joy and pleasure. When you make these changes, most people find that they feel so much better so quickly, it reframes the reason for making them from preventing something bad or fear of something bad happening to joy and pleasure. And ultimately, it's joy and pleasure that uh, make these changes so sustainable. Well, Dr. Ornish, certainly one of the biggest challenges when it comes to health of the American public is the throes of the obesity epidemic that we find ourselves in with a third of the nation's population obese or overweight. And the USDA recently upgraded their nutritional guidelines for healthy eating, and I understand that you have supported them. So tell us about these recent changes and why you think they're a step in the right direction, and what else would you like to see in terms of those recommendations and guidelines? What I like about them is that, for example, they, they call the plant-based way of eating something that they would recommend. Uh, unfortunately, between the initial recommendations, the draft recommendations, and the final ones, they got a lot of pressure from Congress to take out parts about the fact that what's good for you is all good for the planet, uh, because it turns out that one of the leading causes of global warming is, is livestock consumption. And so, um, you know, more global warming is caused by eating meat than all forms of transportation combined. So for all those reasons, I think that there's a convergence of forces that, after doing this work for almost 40 years, is finally uh, making it the right idea at the right time. You know, I was interested in you were talking about uh, telomeres, and obviously in your book, The Spectrum, you, I think we're way ahead of, you know, the human genome was only uh, being mapped around then, and... uh, you know, I always wonder what the resistance is for people to believe this. And do you think the mapping of the genome and the work that's going on there is advancing your cause? You know, what's the tipping point in getting people to sort of connect the dots as you so eloquently have done? Well, I think that we have reached a tipping point, in part because uh, the limitations of high-tech medicine are becoming increasingly clear. The randomized trials have shown, for example, that angioplasties and stents really don't work in people who have stable heart disease, that while they can be life-saving in people who are uh, in the middle of having a heart attack, let's say, they don't really work for people who are stable, and that's who most of the people who get angioplasties and stents are stable. Bypass surgery, if it's effective at all, is only in a fairly small group of people who have left main disease or equivalent and left ventricular dysfunction. It's about 2 or 3% of the people who get operated on getting your blood sugar down with drugs in the Accord study, the Navigator study, and others that were in the New England Journal of Medicine didn't really reduce the horrible complications of diabetes, you know, the blindness and amputations and kidney failure and impotence and heart attacks and strokes and so on. But there's evidence that getting your blood sugar down with with lifestyle works even better than getting it down with drugs. Uh, Maybe one out of 49 men with early-stage prostate cancer benefits from surgery or radiation or chemo. The others get maimed in the most personal ways because they're often either, you know, wearing diapers because they're incontinent or they can't Mm -hmm. have sex Mm because they're impotent. And so at the same time that the limitations are becoming clearer for the most common chronic diseases, the power of these lifestyle changes to not only to prevent but actually reverse these conditions we're showing uh, is becoming more well documented. And now that Medicare is covering my program the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. three or four years, most of the other insurance companies are doing that. So we're really creating a new paradigm of healthcare that's sustainable uh, because if it's reimbursable, then it's sustainable. And if we 
change reimbursement, we change even medical practice and even medical education. The skepticism among a lot of doctors has been, oh, you know, my patients will take their, their statins, their Lipitor, but there's no way they're going to change their lifestyle. It's too hard. Or, you know, why would I want to do that? You know, am I going to live longer? Is it just going to seem longer if I eat and live healthily? This idea that this is really what's really a false choice. You know, mm-hmm. is it good for me or is mm-hmm. it fun for me? But it turns out that, first of all, the adherence to statin drugs is really terrible. Mm-hmm. Half to two-thirds of people who are prescribed them are not taking them after just four to six months. And although we don't usually think of it that this way, they're fear-based. Take this pill, the doctor tells the patient. It's not going to make you feel better. Hopefully it won't make you feel worse to prevent something really awful like a heart attack or stroke from happening years down the road that you don't want to think about. So when we're getting 85 to 90% adherence to our program and all of the various sites we've trained around the country, even though it's a lot harder to change your lifestyle than to take a pill, and the reason is is that there's no point in giving up something that you enjoy unless you get something back that's better and quickly. And when people make these lifestyle changes, because these underlying biological mechanisms that we've been talking about are more dynamic than we had once realized, most people find that they feel so much better so quickly, it reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying or fear of something bad happening, which is not sustainable, to joy and pleasure and freedom and, and love, which are. You know, most people, we found a 96% reduction in the frequency and severity of chest pain in the first few weeks for someone who can't, you know, work or walk across the street before the light changes or play with their kids without getting pain. And within a few weeks, they're essentially pain-free. They say, oh, I like eating cheeseburgers, but not that much because mm-hmm. I like doing these other things even more. Mm-hmm. And as you put it, they connect the dots to what they do and how they feel. It's like, oh, when I eat these foods, when I don't do these things, I don't feel so good. When I do this, I feel really good. So then they get into a virtuous cycle where they start to make changes. They feel better, which makes them want to do even more, which makes them feel even better. And what we've learned in all of our studies is that the more you change, the more you improve at any age, both in how you feel mm-hmm. and in the underlying metrics that we look at. Well, Dr. Ornish, I, I think it's also safe to say that both providers and, and uh, just people have a little bit of fatigue maybe from the constant input about nutritional uh, diets or changes that they should follow from fat-free to sugar-free to the low-carb, Atkins, paleo. The question I would have, based on your decades of clinical work and the work at the Institute, what is the most effective way to help patients make these changes? Can a provider one-on-one with a patient communicate this effectively? Do they need to enroll in some kind of a program? Can they do it on their own just with references and guidebooks? What's your experience around the best way to help people make the changes? Well, I've spent my life answering that question. That's why I spent 16 years to, to work with Medicare to get Medicare coverage of our program because I realized that, you know, we don't learn about these things in medical school as physicians, and we don't really have much time to teach our patients. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have to see a new patient every 8 or 10 minutes, like most doctors do, you barely have time to listen to heart and lungs, write a prescription, write a progress note, you know, out the doors. So we're really trying to create, and we are creating, a new paradigm of health care rather than sick care that now Medicare will pay for 72 hours of training. So in our approach, the doctor is the quarterback, but there's also a a nurse, a yoga teacher, an exercise physiologist, a dietitian, and a psychologist, all of whom work together. People come for four hours at a time, not for 10 minutes, and they get an hour of supervised exercise, an hour of stress management, which includes yoga and meditation, an hour of a support group where people can really talk authentically and openly with each other, which is uh, so powerful, and then they continue to meet amongst themselves. And it's as I say, we're getting 85 to 90% adherence. We're getting bigger changes in lifestyle and better clinical outcomes and even larger cost savings than anyone's ever shown. So if you go to our website, and everything on the website is free, it's ornish.com, 
we partnered with a company called Healthways last year to begin uh, making this program available throughout the country. So, as I mentioned, everything on our Ornish.com site is free. You know, there are guided meditations and exercise classes and recipes and menus and cooking classes. And But, you know, it's hard to create something that's never been done before, and yet it's incredibly meaningful. And so I feel very grateful to be a, a part of that. We're speaking today with Dr. Dean Ornish, founder and president of the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute and a clinical professor of medicine at UC San Francisco, a proponent of nutrition and integrative medicine. You know, I think you should get a Heroes Award just for uh, spending 16 years trying to get Medicare to do something. Uh, And it's so good to hear that uh, Medicare is finally paying. And I think you're absolutely right. They'll hopefully drive more enlightened uh, insurance companies, others to make this possible. And, you know, this whole concept of integrative uh, care is so important. How did you get to that side of the equation? What was the sort of pathway for yourself to come on over and and look at all of the other elements that are really key to successful rehabilitation for folks? Well, I appreciate the comments about Medicare. You know, I was talking with someone who works in the government recently about how it took us 16 years to persuade Medicare that this is worth covering. And I'm grateful to Medicare for doing it. Yes. And then he said, only 16 years? <laughs> <laughs> Things in government work slowly. Oh, my God. But, but they did, and we're grateful for that. Uh, I got interested in doing this out of my own pain when I was a freshman in college back in 1972 and was suicidally depressed. And these approaches really helped bring me out of that. And later when I was in medical school and I was learning how to do bypass surgery with Michael DeBakey, a pioneering heart surgeon. Mm-hmm. We'd cut people open, we'd bypass their clogged arteries, he'd tell them they were cured, and more often than not, they'd go home and do all the things that had caused the problem in the first place, and their bypasses would often clog up, we'd cut them open again. And that, for me, became a metaphor of an incomplete approach, that we were literally bypassing the problem rather than treating the underlying cause. Sometimes when I lecture, I'll show up a cartoon of doctors busily mopping up the floor around a sink that's overflowing, but no one's turning off the faucet. Mm-hmm. And the faucet is to a much larger degree than people had once realized are the lifestyle choices that we make each day. A whole foods plant-based diet, moderate exercise, various stress management techniques, including yoga and meditation, and love and support. You know, eat well, move more, stress less, and love more. That's it. And when we work on that level, we find that uh, people improve so quickly that it really not only reverses the underlying condition, but that their quality of life improves so much that we get past these you know, false choices. Is it fun for me or is it good for me? It's, it's both. We've learned that you can make food that's delicious and nutritious. You don't have to make you know, these false choices of uh, what tastes good and what's good for you. It can be both. And so we're trying to create a greater sense of awareness and empower people with the information that these simple choices that we make in our lives each day can make such a powerful difference in not only how long we live, but also how well we live. When we think about this large-scale change, whether it's, you know, Medicare taking 16 years, or more importantly, you know, our institutions and our infrastructures changing to accommodate this this new world of uh, what the medical schools are calling culinary medicine as they, in the hospitals, as they integrate it into their world. Uh, we wonder, what what's your vision for how this really goes mainstream, large-scale, within the healthcare delivery system, the insurance system, in a way that really changes health outcomes in the future? What, what's your grand plan for how we do this on a very large scale? Well, it's what we're doing now. I mean, the fact that Medicare is paying for this, they are paying for it in a rate of reimbursement that is sustainable. 
and we're now finding that, uh, you know, the big question was, oh, you know, you live in California. It's an altered state. They'll do anything. They're, they're still never playing Peoria. But we, we're getting the same outcomes from, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, or, you know, South Bend, Indiana, as we're getting from, uh, you know, California at UCLA. So, and, and I want to talk a little bit about what you mentioned earlier, that people get confused because they hear so much conflicting information out there. And one of the key bits of information, misinformation that people have been hearing is that Americans have been told to eat less fat, they're eating less fat, they're fatter than ever, and so low fat is dead, you know. But if you actually look at the data of what people are actually eating, not what they say they're eating, but what they're actually eating, and so I went to the U.S. Department of Agriculture database, what I learned is that every decade since 1950, including the current one, we're eating more fat, precisely 67% more fat, more sugar, more calories, and more meat. So not surprisingly, we're, we're fatter, not because we're eating too little fat, but because we're eating too much of everything. And even some of the studies that come out comparing a, quote, low-fat diet with a low-carb diet, you know, I debated Dr. Atkins many times before he died. What they call low-fat isn't really very low in fat, and they often replace fat with sugar, which is not a good idea. An optimal diet is low in fat, low in total fat, particularly low in the bad fats, so hydrogenated fats, the trans fats, saturated fats, and so on. But it has enough of the good fats, the omega-3 fatty acids, for example, that you find in fish oil or flaxseed oil or, or plankton-based omega-3s. It's low in the bad carbs, the sugar and white flour and white rice, but it's predominantly good carbs, fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and soy products. And there's more and more information that the type of protein, it's not just low-fat versus low-carb, that a, a diet that's high in animal protein, there was an article that came out by uh, Emmy Levine in Cell Metabolism last year, and they found that um, diets high in animal protein were associated with a 75% increase in total mortality, a 400% increase in cancer, and a 500% increased risk of type 2 diabetes, independent of this whole fat versus carb thing. So, and the other thing is that some of the weight loss diets will find, well, people lose as much weight on an Atkins diet as they do on a diet that Dean Ornish would recommend. So just choose what you like, do what, do what, do what you like the best. The best diet is the one you'll do. Except... Weight is not really the, the whole issue. We need to also look at what, what, what enhances our health as well as helps us lose weight. You know, you can lose weight on uh, lots of things that are not very good for your health. Smoking cigarettes is a good way to lose weight. Chemotherapy, you know, um, taking amphetamines, those can all help you lose weight, but you mortgage your health. And there was an article by Stephen Smith in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago that looked at what happens in arteries, not just in the weight, but what happens in the arteries, which is really the bottom line on different diets. And they found that on a whole foods plant-based diet like I'd recommend, the uh, arteries were healthy and clean. On a standard American diet, they were partially clogged. And on a high-protein, low-carb, Atkins, paleo, whatever type diet, they were severely clogged, even though the weight and blood pressure and, and cholesterol levels weren't necessarily all that different from each other. These changes in the arteries were mediated through other factors, what they call non-traditional risk factors, things that most people never heard of, like non-esterified fatty acids or endothelial-derived progenitor cells, you know. And so the bottom line is really what's happening in your arteries. And we've shown in randomized trials that the arteries become less clogged. No, one, no, no other diet has been shown to do that in randomized trials. Uh, that the, and it wasn't like there was one set of dietary recommendations for reversing heart disease and a different one for prostate cancer or for your genes or your telomeres. It was the same for all of them. And the more you change, the more you improve. So if you have a life-threatening condition and you're trying to reverse it, 
that's what it takes. That's a pound of cure. That's why we were the first to prove that is because people didn't go far enough. But if you're just trying to stay healthy, lose a few pounds, it's not all or nothing. The more you change, the more you improve. And so my book, The Spectrum, was really based on that principle that the more you change, the more you improve at any age. So you decide how much you want to change, how quickly, how many things. We'll track it. We'll support it. If that's enough to accomplish your goals, great. If not, do more. And I was encouraged that U.S. News and World Report, which has been rating diets since 19, uh, excuse me, since 2011, the last six years, every year since then has rated our diet uh, number one for heart health, including 2016, by a panel of experts there. So uh, even though there's all this confusion out there, when you really kind of cut down to it, there is an emerging consensus about what constitutes a, a healthy way of eating, and it's what we've been recommending for many years. We've been speaking today with Dr. Dean Ornish, founder and director of the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute and a clinical professor of medicine at UC San Francisco School of Medicine. You can learn more about his work by going to his website, ornish.com. Dr. Ornish, thank you for joining us in Conversations on Healthcare today. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank right, you. Ciao. Great. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Senator Ted Cruz, in the last GOP debate before winning the Iowa caucuses, claimed that the Affordable Care Act had forced millions into unemployment and part-time work. He repeated the old claim that the law was the, quote, biggest job killer in this country. We've noted several times over the years that the facts show otherwise, and the latest job statistics make it more clear that Cruz's claim is a partisan falsehood. The economy has added millions of jobs since the ACA, and fewer people are being forced to work part-time, not more. It is true that independent, nonpartisan experts projected some negative effect on employment, with some small employers potentially resisting hiring new workers or cutting back the hours of current employees to keep their total payroll under 50 full-time equivalents. That's the point at which the law would require employers to provide insurance or pay a penalty. But those projections were that the effect would be small or minimal. The employer mandate for businesses with 100 or more employees went into effect on January 1, 2015. Since then, the economy has added more than 2.4 million new jobs. As for part-time workers, the Bureau of Labor Statistics measures the number of people working part-time for economic reasons, either because an employer had cut hours or full-time work wasn't available. That number has gone down by 762,000. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Falling is a common experience among the elderly, and that is not good news. Hip fractures in the elderly are an enormous, devastating, expensive death sentence of an injury. If you're over 65 and you've fallen and broken your hip, 
25% of them will die within 12 months. Another 25% will never be able to live independently, and a full 75% will never regain full mobility. That statistic got former airbag executive Drew Lucatos thinking, what if you could apply the technology used in airbags to create wearable devices that protect a person from the impact of falling? So similar to the auto industry, our government has spent billions in about two decades on fall prevention programs for the elderly. What I'm suggesting is we make that same strategic shift that the auto industry did, and we begin focusing on intelligent protection of our elderly. So they did their research and found a combination of accelerometers and other sensors on the band worn around the waist could deploy within six milliseconds of sensing an imminent fall, and protective bags unfurl around the hip joints before impact with the floor, significantly reducing the blow to the joint. Physics has taught us that Bodies in motion stay in motion until they meet an immovable object, right? In this case, the immovable object is the living room floor. With the right technology, we can ensure that these people that meet that inevitable immovable object, which is the floor, can not only survive that accident, they can walk away. He founded Active Protect Technologies, and while his initial focus was providing a significant barrier to devastating injury in adults, he has additional potential markets as well. With this type of technology, we can protect against concussions. We can now protect Coumadin patients. We can protect postal workers when it's icy out. We can protect our military soldiers from IEDs. A simple retooling of airbag technology in a wearable device that could greatly reduce the devastation of hip fractures, leading to better health outcomes, lower health cost, and better quality of life. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.